Hello and welcome to The Daily Reprieve, where we provide essays, speaker meetings, workshops, and conferences in podcast format. We are an ad-free podcast. If you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by going to donate.thedailyreprieve.com and drop a dollar or two into the virtual basket. Please consider donating monthly by clicking the Donate Monthly button. However, one-time donations are always welcome. Just click the Donate Now button. Now, without further ado, this episode of The Daily Reprieve. Shares for you. Flannery O'Connor once said, anyone who survived childhood has enough material to write for the rest of his or her life. She died at 39, having lived on intimate terms with a disease in which the body basically destroys itself. As a recovering essay, I've lived with a disease of sexaholism that, for many of us from sexually dysfunctional worlds, found us like a heat-seeking missile. At the age of four, I was sexually abused by a beloved older relative who had dementia. I have no memory, no movie moment. What I've been doing in the process of sitting in the therapist's office after 17 years in recovery feels like an immense sadness. It can be overwhelming. Even though I suspected something for decades, it feels as if I've been involved in an accident. And needing a visual reference is like uncovering a stone that sunk into the depths of myself a long time ago. I would go there without realizing my entire life, whenever I felt hurt or less than, knowing I could never measure up, never be enough left unsaid, alone in this place with that knowledge. Being at the bottom of the harbor became a refuge. It was both dark and lonely. I tried to be happy, like other normal kids. The more I tried to pretend and living with the stone, the more it was like feeling like a dog begging for emotional scraps being kicked to the curb. It wasn't that these people were capable of cruelty. They were, you see. But it it was just, for me, making them understand or trying to make them understand, hey, I just want to show you I am worthy of love. Don't you want to be my... And then the thought would trail off and they would turn away before I could finish the sentence. I became resentful, desperate for affirmation and any kind of connection. Around 11, I found a secret salve, progressing from normal sex fantasy to more violent and dark thoughts about women. I began putting disturbed images on paper, using study hall as an introductory drawing for serial murderers. And at 12, I discovered masturbation and acted out with fantasy and more fantasy. I began to need my fix, masturbating several times a day. My parents wondered why I would hole up in my room and the nature of my violent drawings in junior high. I was dealing with repressed memory. Driven by fear and secluded in my dream world, I blocked anger and began to enjoy stealing time separate from reality. 
I became hooked on lust when I was about 13 or 14 after viewing forbidden X-rated pornography acquired by a friend that made its way around the sixth grade. So we were there, uh, and he had this image wrapped up in his coat, and he said, I'm going to, you know, forbidden image. And we went to a, a pumping station around the corner from my house, and there was an old guy who lived in a house across the street and he had a sight line directly to the pumping station. And he saw us. He was walking toward us. And I saw him walking. And, I, and, you know, he had this look on his face and he was kind of hanging back. And he said, you boys looking at anything you shouldn't be? And I said to him, looked him right in the eye and said, no, sir. My friend laughed it off, and I went home, and the image was seared in my brain. No longer not free of that power of fantasy, I I considered breaking into my friend's house and stealing it. I relived the experience, and when that wasn't enough, I used recall, including thoughts of family members. The more intense the lust to lose control, the more thrill. I was progressively addicted to the mental obsession for lust. My use of pornography includes, but is not limited to, photographing my aroused body. This auto-experimentation directed me to pornographic movies and magazines. I became compulsive, lust junkie, and leapt at any chance to indulge, acting out with prostitutes in public and in movie theaters in New York City in the 1970s. I screwed up the courage to drive to New York and pay for sex. I was so physically addicted by that point that the idea of acting out caused me to lose control of my bowels on the road. My soul was up for grabs, but I believed I could control lust, just as I controlled my emotions. I was unaware of the greater risk and danger, and I was afraid to tell anyone about the problem or compulsion lest risk ridicule. I kept lying to myself. To the world, I was a sensitive guy who just had a little problem. I was as sick as my secrets and getting progressively more sick. I slapped a woman on the backside and ran away. It was dangerous, self-harming, crazy, but I was compelled against my better judgment. I could not stop thinking of acting out. During this time, I would feel physical anxiety in my anal region when around certain men. And I would think about anal sex, and that mental obsession became immensely shameful. I did not know if I was male or female. Now I believe I know why. The more I felt anxiety, the more I acted out, the more shame I felt until doing it was the only way to deal with the insanity of lust. I would meander from depression to depression, finding some oasis through humor or acting out with some woman I barely knew. And then once again, I'd find myself on the train going to New York City to act out. I met my wife in 1980, and it took a while before we could perform in heterosexual balance. Once I solved that problem, I figured there was no reason to act out and so could put the shame of the past behind me. When we were on our honeymoon in Hawaii, I dialed up a porn movie on our hotel television. It was then my wife understood something was awry. We achieved physical intimacy. 
but I became increasingly closed off. I was in denial and unteachable. Defensiveness and a kind of hardening had set in. I began flirting. I had never had a real relationship with anyone else, and my wife talks of this period as having nothing emotionally to hold on to. Obsession with self is a negative spiritual attitude or, or force. The outside world may not see it as such, but our spouses, children, fellow workers, cats and dogs, no different to White Book, page 52. Despite continuing to see a wonderful and compassionate therapist who had helped my wife and I from killing each other since before our marriage and who helped me deal with life on life's terms. And despite a wonderful, humorous, generous, intelligent, and loving partner who was and is absolutely a centering force and keeps the meteorite that is my life from careening out of orbit, Despite having earned a decent living and a decent job and having a modestly successful company, despite having numerous blessings and the greatest blessings of a family and a new daughter, I nearly threw it all away. One reason, as I say, I made a decision to be my own God years ago and has set in motion patterns of thinking and events that we don't have time to get into. I became my own higher power at an early age because of my parents were not there to protect me and I needed to protect myself, but mostly because I am, in addiction, in addition to being in recovery, one frustrating, selfish, egotistical, resentful guy, pain in the ass. Now, that is separate from my inner child. My inner child is loving and giving and not taking. I'm talking about, as Marty Q, if you're here, Marty, I don't see you, but if you if you were here, Marty once said, the outer child, the defensive and protective self, the self that erects walls and burn, then burns down towns and bridges, the guy in the movie Titanic who sees the ship sinking and spots this kid and uses her as a prop, lies to one of the stewards telling him she's his, so he'll let him onto the lifeboat. Self equals preservationist plus hedonist. Separated from God and now on the path again to self-destruction. The small voice kept warning me about running my life on my own, but I was having none of that. I was listening to the inner ego because it did something for me. Like a driver heading for the river crossing, thinking I was really in control. Ignoring the warning somewhere a while back about the bridge being washed out in the night. I remember once taking an employee to a Christmas lunch. It was a dark afternoon. It was about to start snowing. I left the restaurant feeling less than. There was a strip bar at a local intersection that I had been to before. And there I am. You should, there I am. I see myself at the strip bar before, like wearing these sunglasses furtively, like looking around when I'm coming in and out, making sure that, you know, the world can't see me. Um, this time I went in and I acted out with a dancer. I had years of experience with this dismal narrative of what comes after, later known in recovery as the anatomy of a slip. 
Overwhelmed with shame that stuck to me like a stain, I limped home to my wife and small daughter. You know, as Harvey says, when God wants your attention, he will find a way. And in the past, in the, I had prayed, take this from me, I'll be good. See, you, you know, you've heard this before, and it never works, right? Never. But now there was something else. I remember the shame, but more. I was so tired, I was sick and tired. I was sick of being sick and tired of having to live this lie of the addict again without being able to put a name to it. I had a family and now had something other than myself. And if I was to lose them, this time I would stay lost. Soon after, I went to see our therapist of blessed memory and said to her, I think I'm addicted to sex. And she said, the words I'll never forget, I think you're right, and handed me the number of an S group. I called SA in New Jersey and spoke to Tom A. And for the first time, he said those words I'll never forget. Eric, I'm seven years sober. If I can do it, you can do it too. I had just heard someone I had never spoken to tell me he was seven years sober from lust. Think about that. If you're a normal person, you say, well, thank you. (laughs) What did you say the meeting is? I called Tom back and explained I was not an alcoholic and that this was sexual addiction, just so we understand. (laughs) So to his credit, he did not call me back. So I walked into the Morris Plains meeting on a Tuesday as my soon-to-be sponsor was walking out, having seen nobody there like two ships in a night. And on September 20, 2002, I attended my first Dover meeting. Jumping into this recovery is a process, physical, emotional, spiritual. Wanting to stop acting out the compulsion in all forms. So I sat there in my first meeting like this, arms folded, scowling. And people were laughing about lust. I mean, lust, powerlessness, and the love and the camaraderie in this meeting. It became a I became a question machine, asking those with time far too many questions. And no one ever turned me away, ever. It was, bar none, the first time I ever remember feeling happy in connection with something healthy. This something was God. God led me to S.A., and S.A. was about to lead me to God. Oh yeah, being restored with integrity, without masturbation, no porn, not singing out images. In that way, I was be, I became willing to take each step and remember the abyss of acting out and come to meetings to stop feeding the obsession. Then I raged and threatened my wife with physical harm, and my wife punched me in the face. Yeah. I sought anger counseling. Not that I needed it, right? Yeah. <laughs> Just a sensitive guy. Uh, dovetailing the counseling with recovery. And I remember going to my first anger counseling meeting. This is at a, 
Kaiser Permanente in San Francisco, and a woman member of that group, this was a facilitated meeting, comes into the meeting and she said, guess what? I just had this breakthrough with my anger and she described uh, crossing the street with her, with her stroller and a truck driver guy in a, in a cab or something. He was on his cell phone and he didn't see her and he stopped short and she was really angry and he grabs the phone from him and breaks it in half and she got applause. This is so great. That's so fantastic. And I'm going, no, this is not great. Um, because I could see, you know, anger for me, uh, is lust to anger. Maybe for someone else it'll work, but, uh, you know, I, I recognize that, uh, there are other people who can better handle it than I can. So anger was just the next phase in recovery, the painful peeling away of a layer of the onion to get to the underlying fear and real pain. And that would take years and many prayers, much step work, journaling, sponsoring, praying, service, and holding on to this fellowship for dear life like a tree in a hurricane. In so doing, I forgot what it was like to have suicidal depression. I signed an anger contract every day with my wife for three years. I began cognitive therapy in concert with my step work. I completed four triathlons. I saw my daughter through high school, dealing with her ADHD and depression. I began a novel, failed to complete said novel published poetry, separated a shoulder, lived through the passing of my mother and my father and my mother-in-law, dealing with her ADHD, with, uh, well, my daughter's ADHD and my mother-in-law's dementia, and whatever alphabet soup of ADD is floating around in my brain, and learning to love God the way that God made me. Several years ago in Nashville, I heard Judson R. introduce himself as a good person worthy of recovery. I remember thinking, that's how I want to think of myself now. That's how I want you to think of me. But it's been a struggle to believe I am good enough. And now that I am older, I think I understand what good enough is. There are times I still don't believe it, but I'm getting better. Recovery is my safe place, whether working steps 2, 3, and 11, as my first sponsor, Kurt, suggested, or in making amends the way my second sponsor, Matt, suggested, or in service the way my current sponsor, Tom, says. And despite all of my struggles, I can say today they're all still sober. For the past 59 years or so, I've carried a secret, that secret that happened to me. It belongs to me. You cannot see it, but it manifests. And I am the one who understands why I do the things I do or don't do. Whatever I've gotten from recovery, whatever inner challenges, in the time I have left, I stride this path with my higher power. My higher power does not send me a FedEx every morning briefing me on his day's plan. It's a struggle to maintain spiritual condition. It's a daily, daily exercise and struggle, but it gets easier. Along the way, I meet others who struggle like you. You have helped me. Now we'll share something with you. 
I have a premonition. I am speaking of the fear of speaking to my brother who is an accomplished professional, a father and a husband, and I tell him, I need to tell you something. And I proceed to tell him that he was abused by the same beloved relative who was suffering from dementia. And I know, as uh, I know, as you know, I will never really speak these words to him because I have no proof, no movie moment, just the only thing that keeps me aware of this trauma that makes it possible to even discuss is recovery. But up here, I can turn to you to hear. In recovery, there is no buffer between God and thou. I used to hate feeling vulnerable. The next thing I want to tell you, you never really need to feel vulnerable. My therapist's office is like being in a pressurized chamber. When I reach the place of where that stone is, that invisible part of me, I put on a neoprene suit, and I can grope around in the psyche unafraid of terrible monsters. Light pierces the, the murk of this place, where in the past it was, um, it was scary. But now it's almost like being in a, in a world where I can see the seaweed waving in the water and there's light coming through, through it, and uh, I'm not afraid of it anymore. I can come down and I can, and I can look through the past, and I can deal with it. I'm not ashamed. If I say I'm an, I'm, a, I'm an abused child, you know, that, that does, you know, the earth doesn't open up and swallow me. I can deal with that shameful secret. How are we on time, Bill? Waiting for a time check. Five? Okay. So I want to talk to you about service. Um, you know, those of you guys who know me, those people who know me here know that I'm involved in correctional service. And I started getting involved in correctional service about 17 years ago, when I, or maybe 16 years ago, when I first came into recovery. And uh, when I met John C. from... Uh, Rochester, New York, and I met him at the Daytona Convention. And, uh, you know, Daytona had just had a hurricane, and uh, the place was pretty pretty ripped up, and the hotel had some exterior damage, and there was, uh, you know, flooding in, in the room and stuff. And so, uh, but, there, and, you know, we'd walk through the, the, the town of Daytona, which was pretty much abandoned, but they had recovery there. And there were people coming to the convention who could produce some pretty interesting fireworks, but they were there for recovery. And it was a feeling of serenity in that, in that hotel. And John was one of the featured speakers, and I never heard anyone from a prison uh, recovery background talk before. When John got up there, he's a little guy with a, a slight voice, but very powerful. Uh, and I would just... Just he, something he said just touched me inside, talking about people in prison who have this disease and who had done the worst, and John had seen the worst. But he had recovered to the point where he was up here talking to you and to me. 
And I decided that, well, you know, as long as we're talking about service and as long as I'm here in recovery, I might want to do something about it. And so after the convention, I called him. He said, get involved with the CFC. I said, what's the CFC? He says, it's the Correctional Facilities Committee. SA has what's called the Correctional Facilities Committee, which allows 12-step work to happen in prisons and in jails. Uh, a little different than AA, AA has H&I. It combines hospitals and institutions. We have both H&I and CFC, and that's the way it is. And John was on the CFC, and so we, we began a friendship that lasted many years, and John became a mentor. And when I said, you should begin sponsoring prisoners, I said, why would I want to do that? Why would you want to do that? He said, because these people need help. Why don't you call Kay in central office? And Kay, you know, was able to give me some further information. It's, you know, one of a thousand and one conversations with Kay where I always left. Yeah, I'm glad I made this phone call. And uh, then uh, I received my first assignment I never sponsored anyone in prison. I'd sponsored a few, uh, well, I sponsored more than a few guys on the outside, but, you know, I'm a pain in the ass, so most of the time my, my sponsees didn't like when I would tell them something. Uh, and I, you know, quickly understood that that doesn't work. Um, so we were at our first uh, meeting on Friday in San Francisco, and I said, to some people, why don't we get together and write to this guy together? And that had never been done. I said, okay, well, we can, what do you, what do you want to do? So, well, I really don't know what I'm doing. He says, okay, well, we could get together and maybe figure it out. What this person is looking for in way of sponsorship. And so we did that. And I remember reading his first letter from, from prison, from a prisoner saying, I'm so and so, uh, he said his name was Miles, and he was in Adrian, Michigan, and he had been incarcerated, and he had been he had done A, B, and C, and they were sexual crimes, and I had never dealt with anyone. Here I am with a, a small daughter in school, and I'm thinking to myself, this guy's a monster. And I, I said, I don't know how I, we can deal with this. And somebody in our meeting said, we have to learn to love this person. I said, well, how do I do that? Well, we just... Do it the way that you would sponsor anyone else. So I had to reach inside myself, look inside, keep the high beams focused on me and my psyche and my wrongs and not on the other person's. And over years, talking about years of him corresponding with our meeting, we would go back and forth and people at that table would write, would, would put down their own experience, strength and hope. And we would work the steps together in a group. And we would send all that information to Miles and Adrian, and he would then write back. And in time, over time, it took years, but his writing and his step work became much more lucid. And he began to have what we would call a a psychic change. And he was now carrying the message to us from his prison cell block. And so that got me interested in doing uh, more correctional service. So I joined the CFC, and formally I became a point contact, and I work with a bunch of people, and I heard how difficult it is, how hard it is to establish an SA presence in prison because of the stigma, because of the security risk of being a sexaholic when you have to watch over your shoulder in, in medium security prisons because somebody's standing there with a shiv, which is an ugly word, which means knife, 
you know, prison is like high school except with knives. That's what I've heard and, you know, understood. So uh, not all. But I also began to understand that these people are just like us, just like you and me, just like you and me. They may have done things, uh, and those who are contrite are now looking for help. And it was uh, a calling. Now I look around and uh, I see that we have, you know, you're all here because you take recovery seriously. I would like to say, I would like to ask you, because we're among friends, who is sponsoring an ind- at least one individual? Just raise your hand. All right, that's most of us. Who is sponsoring two? Who's sponsoring five? Okay. Well, those who are sponsoring one or two or less than five, do you have 15 minutes of time to write a letter to a prisoner? Let's, okay, that was a question. <laughs> uh, I didn't know he was going to ask me this question. He was just up here talking, and all of a sudden now I hear him. But, you know, that, uh, I'm laughing. I'm not actually laughing at you. But that calling, if I came to my first convention, and I said this to Tom many times in 2003, if you would have asked, if you would have said to me that I would be involved in correctional service at some point in my, I would have said, what? You know, but here I, here we are. And the reason is because, how much time, Bill? May I have a time check? I'm doing this because I'm hyper. What? 15 minutes. I'll get to get to listen 15 more minutes. This is great. So uh, I should really think not think about wrapping up. So, you know, the the idea of, of being able to help someone in recovery comes to uh, comes to me or to us as it comes. There's no forcing it. I had to have my own spiritual change, my own psychic change. Uh, I had to move from a place of self-hatred to a place of self-love. And I will say this over and over. It is, we don't talk about self-hatred enough in this program. We talk about sobriety. We talk about the steps. We talk about, we talk about procedures and we talk about all the wonderful things and being beneficiaries of this program. But in terms of the internal changes, what has to happen was we have to, we have to learn to love ourselves. And we don't talk about that enough in meetings. So now I'm sponsoring this guy for, for now 17 years, right? And, uh, and he says, I'm getting out of prison. And I said, wonderful, wonderful. And I know this guy and, uh, who's a pastor in Grand Rapids. said, that's fine, that's fine. And so now Miles has been in contact with, with Pastor Jim Bright uh, for many years. And Jim is a great guy. He and his wife are wonderful people, leaders in the community. And they wanted to put together a, uh, a couple of uh, residences for those who were released from prison who were sexual offenders. And the community said, no, we don't want you to do this because they were afraid. And I know that fear is a, is a you know, we talk about fear and self-hatred. 
you know, there should be a chapter in the big book or in, in our literature about these, about, well, I know, you know, Roy talks about fear, and we all talk about it, but uh, in the big book of AA, they say, you know, fear is the evil corroding thread. It's the, I think only, the only time I can remember in the big book where they use the word evil. The same thing about self-hatred. And I'll just let you reflect on that. So now Miles is, is getting out of prison. This is fantastic. And so he's now living in a motel. They won't let him out of the motel because you can't, you know, like he just came out of prison and he has uh, conditions of his parole and uh, he's got to wear an ankle bracelet. But in time, through working this essay program and through working with Jim Bright and, and, and someone standing up before you who's been put here by his higher power, uh, Miles got an apartment. He got a job. He got a, he got a better apartment. He got a better job working for the same company. And aftermarket automotive firm in Michigan, a manufacturing firm in the United States. And being someone who is a valued employee and sought for his service. Uh, this past year they, they, they called him in. And after five years, he said, your services are no longer needed because of your, well, I say, why? Well, because of your record. So clear out your, clear out your stuff. So he did. He went home and he called me up and he, we prayed and I spoke to him and I know that he was praying with his wife. I said, what, what can we do here? Uh, so I called the, the, the governor's office. Of Michigan, and I got some resources, and some of those resources were not of much help. But he found a church group, and he sat and he prayed with them, and he found another job. And just like in his previous work, he is now working for a company. He's working an hourly job. I spoke with him today, uh, and I said, "Well, how's it going?" Well, you know, I just worked a three-hour uh, shift yesterday. The boss came up to me, shook my hand, and said, you didn't have to do that. You know, he said, well, that's who I am. That's what I do. And we talked about this, and I, and he said, uh, you know, I go home to my wife, and she says, my wife, uh, I forgot to mention that he's married, and I attended their wedding. And she says to me, I'm so glad you're my husband. He's 11 years sober. Today. He's 11 years sober today. So when I get up there for the birthday celebration, I'm not doing it for me. I'm doing it for him, doing it for you, because this program is a we program. And uh, I just know that uh, this whole process of being led through the steps and working and continuing to take this program seriously. And now I'm just I'm reflecting on my wife and my daughter who are back home in, in California. And I would have none of it. I would have none of this. Thank you. My first time check, but we'll, we'll shorten things up. Um, thank you. <laughs> you think this is easy, you come up here. Okay. <laughs> So, you know, I'm getting into my, my comedic act. So, so, you know, we, 
This is, uh, you know, Harvey had mentioned, had, had talked about the oneness of this program, of working with people who would probably never give me the time of day if we met on the street. Who are we kidding, really? Right? But, you know, I could walk through Borough Park, or I can go through Nashville, I can go through Sydney, I can go through Galway or, or, or Tokyo, the Rapungi District, and, oh, you know, you're an addict. Okay, come into a meeting. Okay, so we, have, we, we, we speak a universal language. And this is a language of recovery, uh, male and female, and uh, whatever you identify. And so if you are here, as I was here in 2003, not knowing whether I should be here, my first convention with my sponsor, my first sponsor, Kurt, and we went to that convention I'll wrap up with this. Seems a good place to get off as any. So, and then we have Dave coming up. So, uh, David, sorry. So, uh, <laughs> it's funny to say Dave. So, the uh, here we are in Newark, and Tom A is up here. The same Tom A who said to me, "Eric, if I can do it, you can do it." Well, Tom A is up here talking, and he says uh, he's, he's reading from the Big Book, and I'm sitting on one of these tables here. And I'm sitting with my sponsor and two other people, and those people are probably no no longer in S recovery, and so uh, husband and wife, and something in me opened. There was a a feeling that the gates of denial had opened up, and reality came in and said, "Yes, I'm one of you. I I need to be here, not." With the people going up that escalator to the next, you know, next meeting in the financial planning area, be addicted to money, not those people right here. This is who I am. And I've never looked back. Um, my, my, my sponsor, that man who's a very, very generous man, as is my current sponsor, uh, said, you know, you, Eric, catch the gems as they fall from heaven. And I'm, you know, I am still catching the gems. And uh, if you're not sure if you belong, stick around. Uh, and I will say this as we, as we uh, begin to pass the baskets for the Correctional Facilities Committee. The Correctional Facilities Committee is a committee of trusted servants who works on several continents. Uh, it costs, it costs to do this work. We're the only committee that does both internal and external outreach. That means that we, re, uh, we say recruit sponsors by mail to, hand, to work with people on the inside. We also do outreach to the prison regimes or the prisons themselves, the people who make these decisions, administrators, wardens, assistant wardens, and community resource people, chaplaincy. All that takes effort. Uh, we are graced by the wonderful Pam Howes from Central Office, who holds all of this together, if she is here. Oops. Come on. I'm not doing this one alone. Come on. Come on. At least you stand up. Thank you. All right. Okay. You also have Laura and Kay and, uh, you know, uh, 
Kay, who is uh, who is stepping away from her position, but she is the uh, she is the Muhammad Ali of SA. She f- floats like a butterfly, stings like a bee, and um, I have never. I've never been around someone who is just so graceful in her ability to bestow humor that has a little barb attached to the end of it. Thank you so much uh, for all these many, many years of service. Thank you. This one's for you. So my my sponsor, Tom, says, I am insufficiently grateful. So we are insufficiently grateful for you in central office. Thank you so much. And for, for all of you trusted servants who are here. So uh, it costs money to do this because we're a small but mighty committee uh, beholden to the, the, the trustees and to you. Uh, it costs about, I would say, I'm going to get in trouble for saying this, I know, but about $12.00. Is that you're nodding? So I'm okay. So I'm I'm on track. But that doesn't include plane fare and other uh, incidentals and sundry costs that the fellowship pays for. Twelve dollars per per person to for each individual that we are sponsoring or uh, responding to, because the CFC is yes, we are first responders when it comes to prisoners. Okay most of whom are male, but we are also encouraging people who are uh, women prisoners also. And I'm happy to say that we have formed, yes, we have formed a subcommittee of uh, women SA in prison. And there are trusted servants here who are dedicated to finding ways of carrying a message to women in prison. So this is a new deal. Uh, We have the higher power, just to give you an idea, we have had over 200 inquiries by mail from April to October of last year. Over 200. The higher power has seen fit to open the spigot. It is wide open now. And for whatever reason, there may be a sea change in the way prisons work or whatever. We don't know. But it's now up to the CFC and the fellowship to respond. And so we need your help. Uh, hopefully we have baskets being passed around, are they? But if we, if we, that's the cue for baskets. I don't, okay, well, I guess we'll, what's the deal? Are we going to do that or not? Okay, okay. Well, thank you. Okay. Uh, so as, as we wrap up, uh, your funding is, 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 uh, very, very needed. Your service is even more, more so needed. The CFC table, you know what you love it. Uh, our literature tables in the in the concourse. Please stop by this weekend and uh, help us to help those who are asking for help and who are dying for recovery in prison. Um, I um, I love this fellowship and uh, and I love you. Thank you. like to thank you for listening to this episode of The Daily Reprieve, the best source for experience, strength, and hope for SA members. Please subscribe to this podcast to be alerted of new episodes. Please show your support by donating to The Daily Reprieve 
by going to donate.thedailyreprieve.com and choosing either monthly donations or a one-time donation by clicking Donate Now. Thank you for listening, and stay tuned for the next episode of The Daily Reprieve. Thank you.